You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Mike Green, I'm here in Marin County for Real Vision. I am incredibly excited to continue my path in 2021 of being an equal opportunity offender of all sensibilities by bringing on Rohan Gray, Assistant Professor of Law at Williamette University. Rohan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you and I have interacted over Twitter after I listened to a podcast appearance that you did on my friend Dimitri Kofinas's podcast, Hidden Forces, which I thought was absolutely spectacular. And you know, I've spoken to Dimitri about, um, about you and your conversation. It was very palpable how hard that conversation was for Dimitri as, a, as an individual who has come through the Austrian school, now acknowledges that there are some significant problems associated with that but you fall very much into the camp that says, look, money is effectively a construct of the government. There is no exchangeability at this point. And your approach coming at it from a law standpoint actually meshes very well with mine. And I think it's really, really important to actually think about that in the context of, you know, well, why was the Constitution written from, by lawyers, et cetera, right? So maybe you could give us just some of your quick background and then we can go into a discussion, particularly around the dynamics of stable coins and regulation, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So I grew up, my father is, is a lawyer actually in Australia, but he was a scientist beforehand and worked on telecommunication regulation in the 1980s when they were first rolling out pay TV and communications act uh, upgrades in Australia. So I grew up kind of listening to that uh, and was always interested in technology and internet-related issues. Uh, but I went to law school in the United States after moving here when I was about 20 on exchange, uh, studying political science at UPenn and friends of mine there who went on to work on Wall Street while I was teaching at an elementary school in Harlem. It, I, I kind of became interested in finance and uh, particularly growing up in the, the shadow of the global financial crisis, it loomed heavy over all of the issues that I was looking at and interested in and just sort of daily life. Um, I kind of got into money pretty early on there, mostly just through following blogs and online news discussions and things in that very sort of fertile period of blogging after the global financial crisis, where there were all these really interesting people all kind of having these different conversations across their respective platforms. And I had no dog in that race other than that I had studied sort of heterodox political economy in undergraduate, uh, no, no kind of MMT, but certainly been exposed to post-Keynesianism and institutionalism and those kinds of things. And it just could have came to me over, over reading a, a long time that these group of thinkers had stumbled upon some really big ideas. And whenever I would read criticisms of them and, and debates, I just consistently felt like they were coming out on top. Um, and I had already kind of been thinking legally, as I said, in part from growing up around lawyers and always knowing I was going to law school. But when I got to law school, I expected a lot of these conversations about money as a sort of creature of law and of the state and of institutions uh, to, to be something that a lot of lawyers understood. And it was a bit shocking to me to find just how many didn't understand those things outside of sort of hyper-specialized 
law and finance scholars, even though money is so central to how lawyers think across the board, whether it's contracts or property or anything else. So I had put on a series of educational events at Columbia that eventually became my nonprofit, the Modern Money Network, which I still direct, uh, and and started collecting other like-minded lawyers who are interested in sort of money and finance with a with a progressive bent, and and integrated myself more with the other MMT sort of scholars and started doing my own work on that. Yeah, and, and it became really obvious to me over time that there was a very important synergy between the work that MMT economists were doing and, and lawyers, uh, in, in part inspired by the sort of historical success of the Brains Trust in the New Deal, where institutional lawyers and uh, institutional economists and, and sort of New Deal lawyers worked together to build this sort of new macro paradigm. And when we started to put this work together there, we started to see people who'd been working on sort of different parts of the elephant, uh, so to speak, describing different parts, understanding different parts and bringing them together to make something greater than the sort of sum of its parts. And uh, I actually was practicing as an attorney for children in family court in New York. Uh, and I like to joke, I didn't litigate a single dollar there. I was dealing with custody and visitation and those kinds of questions mostly. Um, but at night I was working on money and finance and eventually I decided to sort of switch and do this full time. Just there was more kind of pressing need for this work relative to the number of other very good uh, children's attorneys out there. Uh, so went to back to law school to do a, a legal PhD, and now I'm a, a professor teaching you know, contracts, securities regulation, business associations, those kinds of things. And I work with uh, policymakers, legislators, social movements and things to try to articulate these ideas, get them out there, change the way that we make policy for the better. So when you think about... You mentioned the, the, I'm going to change this up a little bit from the way we talked about it. You, you mentioned the idea of money being really important and that very few people had thought about it. And I agree with you that the dynamics of the global financial crisis, I think, kind of threw up in everybody's um, mind suddenly this idea that, well, what is money, right? It, it led to a rebirth of Austrianism, right? It led to a, the, the Austrian school had, quote unquote, predicted the collapse. Now, of course, they have predicted every collapse repeatedly over and over again. But the underlying dynamic of the question of what is money and what does it actually mean, I think most people had never really thought about that before 2008, right? It had become so embedded within our social framework that we just didn't give it any serious thought. And we had moved far enough away from the inflation of the 1970s, which occurred largely on a global basis, that I think we kind of met the Federal Reserve's definition of you never, you no longer really thought about inflation in terms of your your money. You didn't think about the stability of it. It become, from a Western perspective at least, it became a non-issue. You bring up this idea that money is best examined effectively by lawyers, right? Because it is on our dollar bills. It says, you know, for you know, for the settlement of debts, right? This is legal tender for the settlement of debts, both private and public. That is a legal phrase, right? What does it mean? What does money mean to you? How would you think about the definition of money? I mean, I think one thing to start with here is I, I wouldn't say it's even just the province of lawyers, but it is certainly a legal concept. So you should be thinking legally. And probably my first ever uh, talk at an MMT conference was money. Is money a creature of the state or a creature of law? And usually people would consider those things to be almost coextensive. And in, in modern society, in many respects, they are. But my point was that Law is something that people feel a sense of ownership over. You know, we often think of the state as this thing out there. It's it's a, you know, evil, centralized, you know, behemoth that we can't do anything about. It's inefficient. 
But law is the kind of thing that you can make a change with, whether it's you and an attorney going to court or you carrying your pocket constitution around, which is probably, you know, right now not the best example. Um, but uh, but this idea that law is something that everybody has a right to be participating in and making every day. And, um, you know, some people famously said, Edmund Burke, that there's more, there's more kind of force in table manners than in many laws. But you know, people like Martin Luther King saying that, uh, you know, we fight for human rights that haven't been recognized yet. And so often the conversation about social morality takes place on the plane of law and whether or not you like the state in whatever abstract sense, um, any social organization is going to be done through law. And even friends of mine who are very lefty and Marxists, you know, they'll use categories like workers and uh, the employment contract. And they will talk about these things as somehow existing before law. You know, they talk about law as this superstructure that comes in later after the economic base. And I think what a lot of the lawyers that I work with are trying to to emphasize is that, no, those are in, in and of themselves legal constructs, legal creations, whether that's the contracts and the accounting rules and the property rights that govern, quote unquote, private markets, or it's it's public governance, you know, more broadly, criminal or constitutional, those kinds of things. We, we live in this fabric, whether we like it or not. And when it comes to money, um, you know, there are different ways we can design money. So I often like to say there are three forces. There's law, there's political economy, and then there's technology, right? There's something different about money 5,000 years ago to today in a digital world, etc. cetera. Um, but there's something the same. And there's something different about law across those periods, but there's something the same too. So if we sort of try to think at the nexus of those three, you know, uh, interrelated forces, I think that's the sort of best framework. And generally... I think it's a lot easier to convince people about the technology and about the economics being important than it is about the law. The law often feels invisible to people. I think that's very true. And actually, I would go so far as to say that there was an assumption in your statement, right, that people have ownership of the laws. That's only true in a common law system, right? So one of the real challenges that I would suggest that we're struggling with right now is that it, people don't seem to actually feel that they have that ownership. Increasingly, we're hearing... Uh, you know, particularly within the crypto community, right? The desire to make code law, right? Turn it into programming, make everything written down and have no questions about how it's applied. You know, that's effectively the code of Hammurabi or, or Napoleonic code, right? Once written down, it can't be modified. One of the dynamics of our constitution in the United States, and this is largely true throughout the developed Western world of systems of democratic governance, is that you have a right to a jury of your peers, right? That introduces an element of flex to that system where the law as it is written may not actually be the governing principle, right? You are able to turn to your fellow citizens and say, I was bamboozled, I was swindled. The contract as written was not legal, right? Um, yeah. Or I'm a black man who got arrested in a black town or something. Correct. And so we, could, we can put it into those types of dynamics. And I think those are particularly resonant for many individuals. I think one of the challenges, of course, when we say that is it becomes loaded for a lot of other people as well. Right. So regardless, we're talking about a system where we recognize that we need to have flex. We need to have humanity within that system. Right. That's what a common law system is. When we talk about many of the rules around crypto or the smart contracts or everything else, we immediately gravitate towards something that looks much more like a Napoleonic code. It doesn't matter whether it was written properly or not. The government set it down, laid it out. This is the interpretation. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I actually, I interned with a judge in Louisiana, which is one of the only <laughs> places in the United States that uses a civil code system. And at least in my experience, there's actually not as much difference. And a lot of scholars of comparative law will say, you know, these two legal systems are in some respects converging or have a lot of convergent dynamics over time. Um, I, I, I think when I was talking about the law being something you can own, I mean, I totally agree that a lot of people don't feel that sense of ownership and the dislocation from the power of, you know, the people in general, I think, is, is a large part of why politics right now is so um, polarizing. But I, I was thinking also even at the level of things like popular revolution and popular consent. You know, if people, you put, a, you put a speeding law and nobody enforces it because nobody believes in it. Is that actually a law? And so the common law civil law distinction, it's not, it's not unimportant, but it's certainly, I think, what I'm thinking about here is law is something deeper, which is, you, some, a state can write a law, and if somebody finds that unjust, you call it an unjust law, right? The premise is not it's it's correct because it's the law, unless you're an extreme kind of uh, uh, obedient personality. It's it's that we actually have a right to second guess law uh, and the legitimacy of of law, um, where wherever it comes from. So I think that's an important kind of point that transcends which particular legal system you're in. Um, your point about code is is is, is very important and. I, one of my advisors when I was doing my doctorate, James Grumman, wrote a really great piece called um, Smart Contracts Are Inherently Ambiguous. Um, and he sort of traces as an example that often people like to use with smart contracts as a sort of proto-smart contract is the vending machine. And the idea of this sort of automating this process, you put a coin in, you get a can of drink out or something. But he makes the point that if something goes wrong with that, you call the company. You know, you, there's still someone to sue. There's still a legal system around a vending machine. We don't leave the realm of legal accountability the minute we start using machines. In fact, we use machines all the time. And I think the automation of certain processes involved in transactions is it has an effect of changing how we live, right? It is different to be using digital technology compared to clay tablets. But there's, But that isn't, I think... Um, the difference between law and no law. And even people like Larry Lessig, who famously coined that code is law phrase, I think would, would, would admit that there are other you know, forces at play uh, beyond the code. And a lot of the, uh, the crypto kind of enthusiastic community ignores that to their peril only to discover it in, <laughs> in moments of crises again or in moments of conflict. Um, so I, I think that there's a, there's a very important sense in which law is not something that's the exclusive prerogative of the state even if the state is the primary administrator of most laws in a modern society. Um, and that's sort of where I was starting from. And and technology can come in, um, but I think that often reflects a desire of people just to pretend those laws don't exist. And you see this even with Austrians and libertarians in general. They like to talk about a world where there's no state or very small state, but also very expansive protection of property rights. And at least for me as a progressive, that's sort of a, a misnomer. You, you need a strong enforcer there to to keep you know people off your land um if, if that doesn't make someone a statist i don't know what does well so that's actually i'd love to continue that because effectively what you just described is a dynamic where code exists but ultimately the enforcement mechanism has to be the state right there has to be a power that exists that can say no this is contractually his land you're not allowed on it simply because you're bigger stronger have more guns etc Right. Warren Mosler refers to this as the state has a monopoly on violence. Right. And or at least on legal well, violence. Legit, leg, legitimate violence. Right. Yeah. I genuinely agree that people tend to take that for granted. They assume that everything will operate within that construct. I, I find it interesting that many of the individuals that are particularly involved with the programming dynamic 
tend to have somewhat asocial personalities. And so may under, you know, I, I think there is a dynamic of saying, these are the rules, right? If everybody just followed the rules, then everything would be fine, right? Um, and yet we know that the power to put something into code is the power to deceive, right? It is, you can hide something in there, you can change something, you can take a contract and force somebody to enter into it into direct, you know, under duress, right? If you're gonna feed your family today, you have to sell your children tomorrow, right? We all know those types of dynamics exist and the state functionally has to play that role. So this is, becomes really important when you talk about the state because we've seen technology effectively flout the rules to the benefit of society or at least the perceived benefit of society for the past give or take 40 years, right? Effectively since Ronald Reagan, we've had an environment of deregulation with the idea being that the state uh, roadblocks that effectively get put up are meant to be taken down. We should dismantle those. And I would just point to things like, you know, Facebook and Twitter becoming communications companies without seeking communications licenses, right? Uber becoming a tra Uber and Lyft becoming transportation companies without having, you know, taxi medallions, the underlying dynamic of Airbnb and lodging. <clears throat> and now we're seeing this move into finance where organizations that don't have banking licenses or in your assessment, taking banking deposits. Is this different? I mean, should we not be celebrating the innovation that's occurring there? I mean, I guess it also depends on where you view those initial developments. I mean, if you want to look at something like Uber, it it basically, its business model was built on undermining traditional employee relationships. And there's a reason why recently with things like Prop 22 that Uber has become very interested in lobbying for new regulatory regimes. And when courts actually said, you know what, what you were doing was not legal, they said, fine, we'll just change the law, which, you know, to me is not skirting the law. It's simply a form of regulatory capture. And it's if I can get $5 billion or $10 billion or $20 billion in, cap in investment capital on the premise that we'll throw that money at the re regulatory regime and we can do whatever we want because politicians are so captured. Um, that to me is is a, is a general trend of, of corporate capture of governance that really should be resisted in general. I mean, I think there are there are real risks to that in the transportation space and others, you know, in the housing space with the risks to do with Airbnb. But even when there are benefits to the technology, the the question of, you know, is the best way to capture those benefits with these mega companies, uh, I think is still an open question. A colleague of mine, a law professor named Sanjuk Paul, has a really great article called Antitrust as Allocator of Coordination Rights, where her point is that there are always different forms of coordination in the economy. This sort of big company versus little mom and pop store is a, is a convenient simplification. But in reality, one of the more interesting dynamics is uh, that if a number of private taxi company, uh, taxi drivers, for example, tried to form an association together to offer an app like Uber, they would be accused of price fixing as independent contractors. Whereas if they did that inside a firm like Uber, they wouldn't. But then again, Uber says that those actually aren't the employees of that firm, they're independent contractors. And so it's not even just size versus, you know, big size versus little size. It's could we have a group of small producers coordinating to maintain some sort of price system similar to how a large firm does internally um, without that becoming a big monopoly? And that has that has very much to do with the way that we set up the legal, what, what she calls coordination rights between different actors there. 
So when it comes to something like, for example, the banking system, um, the choice doesn't have to be five big massive banks or everybody owning their own wallet. It could be a whole range of different arrangements where there are small actors and larger actors and different forms of coordination that are currently precluded. But when it comes to the systemic risk of money itself, I think there is something different, yes, which is that bank deposits uh, at least since I would say the 1930s, but probably realistically more like since the 19th century, are a form of public money. They've always been a form of public money and they've served a very dominant role in the the, the payment system that average people use uh, as well as the state uses. And so when you have banks engaging in activities that are unregulated or unlicensed, it creates a form of systemic risk, not only for that sector or for that actor, for that firm, but for the entire economy, because when money collapses, other people suffer who use money, even if they're not part of, quote unquote, the money industry. And so the real question, I think, is what makes something a form of public money? And the argument that I have, and I think this is backed up by the work of other legal scholars like Morgan Ricks, is that when you promise a fixed value denominated in the public unit of account and you promise that that can be converted in and out to other forms of public cash or public currency, that is the moment when you are offering something that walks and talks like a deposit. And there have been moments in history where we tried to regulate bank notes, you know, back in the 1800s mm-hmm. when there were different kinds of bank notes circulating. And they, and the minute we successfully regulated them, banks moved into deposits and then into checks and then into money market funds. So there is this ongoing kind of game of regulatory cat and mouse. Uh, and people like Haim and Minsky would say that's inevitable. You just have to be ahead of the game. You know, you've always got to be trying to play that game. That's the that's the sort of nature of regulation. Uh, but I think the reality is that we're just entering the next phase of that. And it's a different phase. It's not exactly the same as prior ones because the technology and the, the moment in history is different. But it's the same game. It's it's the money market funds saying we're not doing banking when they are. It's the, the banks saying we're not issuing banknotes. We're just issuing deposits when they're basically the same with a slightly different layer, et cetera, et cetera. And there are a lot of people in that space who will earn a lot of money by ignoring that history right up until the point they lose it. So. Yeah, so so Raoul Paul, the founder of Real Vision, has has a you know expression that the biggest market is money, right? And so this is whether you agree with that or not, this is actually exactly why people are fighting over this. And yeah, why, wanted, why did you rob? Why did you rob the bank? Because that's right. where the money is. That's where the money is, right? So when you when when you stop and think about that, though, um, it feels very. It's easy to become very detached from that, right? Like, why should I care if I have local banks? Why should I care if I have? a um, decentralized financial system where everybody has their own wallets, right? And part of the argument here, and this goes to the work of Richard Warner and others, is the dynamics of, of effectively directing those funds, right? How, how you should be thought, thinking about that. And one of the key stories of the 19th century, particularly earlier in the 19th century, and then again during the Gilded Age, is the dynamics of effectively money trusts, where money was deposited in banking institutions and then shuffled off to the money centers, right? So the available funds for reinvestment in the Western frontier and the agricultural communities or today in the Rust Belt, those funds were really not available for the local community. There's, it becomes very difficult to reinvest under that framework. And I, I'd suggest that one of the things that we've seen is we've seen people start to try to address this, right? Kickstarter or you know, uh, GoFundMe or any of these things are, are, are a way that people are trying to 
redirect their dollars into communities that they care about as compared to financing my 10 times leverage on a you know US treasury bond to pocket some carry differentials or to take advantage of the Japanese you know yen's uh, uh, basis swap differential right that, that's part of what you're actually seeing people say and so it feels to me that people are in this conversation they're trying to address this conversation but the tools are not necessarily there to make them fully aware of their rights in this framework. And, and I'd suggest that you are beginning the process of trying to reintroduce that concept. Does that feel fair? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I mean, there's two things there, I think. One I definitely agree with, which is um, a lot of the way that shadow banking, which is what we're really talking about, unregulated, unlicensed banking operates, is it's not entirely separate from the regular regulated banking system. In fact, it's often the sort of dark twin. It's the sort of the, the id to the ego, right? And that the, the, the large regulated actors create off-balance sheet vehicles, they create partnerships with other actors and fintechs and payments processes precisely to do the things that they're not allowed to do in the sunlight. And so the idea that by kind of shutting down shadow banking, you're letting the big banks win, I think is just untrue. In fact, what you're doing is you're trying to stop those actors doing all the things that we've already agreed we don't want them to be doing just by skirting existing regulations. And, you know, there was a point after 2008 where off balance, the word off balance sheet and special purpose vehicles was in every second piece of financial analysis. And it's sort of almost dropped off. If you kind of look out there now, we're not talking about that stuff today. But if you look at the way that PayPal or Circle even and others are glomming onto the banking system, uh, the banks are sort of letting them be the bleeding edge and take a lot of that risk with the knowledge that they're always going to come back. They're always going to come with their hand out. They're always going to want to have a partnership when it gets really big, which is exactly what you're seeing with Jeremy Allaire and Circle, is that they're they're trying to be the good guys who get the license and do the right partnerships and everything. And I think you're going to leave a lot of those other kind of more DeFi crypto people in the dust. They're going to, and then all those people are going to think, wait, weren't we all true believers? No, 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 you idiot. We were always we were always pitching ourselves to the banks, right? Um, so that's one thing is that a sort of regulating shadow banking is as much about curbing the excesses or the or the, the, the unlawful behavior of existing banks as it is about the bleeding edge small guy. I think the other point that you mentioned, which about Kickstarter, I, 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 I get your point, but at the same time, I think one of the, the, the idea that the only money that gets invested is already existing in circulation in that reinvestment cycle, I think, you know, I'm not saying you're saying that, but that is a, often a perception that gives gives the impression of people that there's a sort of fixed pot of funding out there. And I think one of the things about banking specifically that makes it so important is it's a source of new investment. It's, it's sui generis funding purchasing power. The act of making loans creates credit that expands the, the economy, expands the monetary system in, in new ways. And so to, to have Kickstarter on one hand and then to have a bank on the other, if you said, which one do you want? I want the bank because the bank is the engine, right? The, yep. the Kickstarter is a recycling machine, but the bank is the one that's actually making those things new out of new cloth. And so I think the real damage here is is what kind of Hyman Minsky talks about, which is when it seems like everything can only go up, the, the guardrails, the sort of 
the the discipline starts to relax in that money creation, right? There's always going to be profits, therefore we'll lower the standards for the next loan. And those actors have a structural incentive to downplay the risks, to downplay the, the disciplinary side of things until everything blows up. And the only actor that's actually responsible when everything blows up is the public authority because they're the ones that have got to ensure people eat <laughs> and the payment right. system keeps working, right? Half of those bankers get to cash out. The other half get to go on a receivership or get a bailout or something. It's the, it's the public actor that's left holding the bag. And so to me, it's the boom-bust cycle of credit that is the major risk of shadow banking is that shadow banking just turbocharges that. It pours gasoline on the fire and it does so out of public scrutiny in the, at the precise moment where public scrutiny is most needed. Um, so I, I'm not sure if we can, uh, I'm not sure if the question, if the problem is so much the funds aren't staying in communities as we're not actually giving the right stakeholders access to that banking power, to that money power. And we could do that in a way that brings it back to communities, but it would look a lot more like public investment, public banking systems, you know, localized credit, those kinds of things, and a lot less like these sort of cowboys who know how to code, taking billions of dollars until the music stops for themselves. So you, you transitioned beautifully into um, the area that I kind of wanted to go, right? So I, I completely agree with you that Kickstarter, like many other things, is is premised on a false idea, right? Which is the only source of funds is me saving and giving it to somebody else, right? That's ultimately equity, right? That right. That is what, what a bank does differently is just that it takes the equity, the capital that has been accumulated in the equity account of a bank, and it puts it at risk in credit operations, right? Extending credit to activities that are supposed to have a higher return that is capable of returning not just the principal, but also some interest component associated with it and creating additional surplus for society, right? In order to do that, you have to have that ability to expand the dollar. You have to have a flexible system. Part of what I think people are reacting to, though, in this framework is, is that it feels so clearly biased towards that bailout framework, right? So the fat cat extends credit and then gets bailed out, right? His bond claims get held whole. One of the things that was very clear in our industry was the characteristics of the outrage around the abrogation of rights in the Chrysler bailout or the GM bailout in 2008, right, 2009. Today, we have a number of individuals who are still litigating claims over was Freddie Mac properly taken over, et cetera, right? Those may have valid dynamics to them in, in terms of a legal framework, they may ultimately end up winning. But one of the really important things that that highlights is this issue of choice, effectively, that you're referring to, the thoughtful allocation of how do we do this, right? I think the most interesting way to transition into MMT is to address this idea. I think you and I both see the dynamics of modern monetary theory as true in a descriptive sense. It tells us the way the system works. Where people start to get outraged and struggle with it is the discussion around what does it tell us we should do? And the answer to that is nothing, right? It doesn't actually tell us what we should do. It doesn't tell us how we should spend that money, how we should allocate that capital. You and I can have very different choices in terms of how that should be done. But does that feel fair at this point? Does that feel right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think 
there are two two sort of layers, right? I, I, I'm not really of the view that there's anything that's truly sort of apolitical or neutral, right? There's a reason why people say something. If I'm in the middle of a room and there's a fire and I yell out fire, in some respects, that's descriptive, right? I've just described what is. In another sense, there's a very real effect of me choosing to yell out fire in that moment. And if I hadn't done that, something else would have happened. And so we can't really look at, in my opinion, uh, descriptions without looking at the context in when that description is being offered. I mean, there's that famous line, I forget who said that in, in the time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And so the question, for example, of... Um, uh, of how to deal with bank bailouts, right? If you listen to someone like Hyman Minsky, he would say two things, I think. One would be, we, if we're going to eventually bail these guys out whenever they have a crisis because we're implicitly admitting they're too big to fail, we should probably be honest about that at the outset. We should probably be treating these actors like systemically important and maybe even public actors in some sense if we're not going to let them fail according to the logic of private you know risk the second thing he'd say is if we know this is coming if we know this happens every time maybe we need to be more vigilant on the upswing when things are still good before the shit hits the fan and the music stops because we know that that's coming at some point and so whether you consider that a kind of normative prescription or an obvious observation that follows from this, the basic layout of the facts, I mean, it really might depend on your personality or your personal sense of judgment. Um, another example, and this is one that I know gets a lot of people rankled and certainly people like Dimitri, is to describe unemployment as a monetary phenomenon. Now, I would call that a descriptive claim. You may or may not like that fact, but the idea that, you know, fish aren't unemployed, right? There's no monetary system for which they're trying to earn money by giving their labor power and can't do that. Um, if you accept that's a description of unemployment, then it stands to reason that the actor that creates money is in a unique position to address that problem. Now, whether you think it should, yes, that I think is a normative point. But I think a lot of people would actually take issue with the descriptive claim that money is an, is 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 uh, unemployment is a monetary phenomenon because precisely it carries normative weight. Even admitting that description leads you to a different normative debate than you otherwise would have. And if I say, for example, banks are public franchisees. That also leads to a very different set of normative conclusions because suddenly you're in a world of, oh, these are not private markets with private actors taking on risk. These are quasi-publicly delegated actors operating, you know, with a deputy's badge on behalf of the sheriff. Um, and maybe we should treat them like public employees if that's the case. Um, so I think that, that that line of descriptive normative, people will always feel some pressure right up at the point where they don't agree. Um, but... It, where where you call something descriptive and where you call something normative, I think, is a, is a bit malleable. Um, I certainly think that one of MMT's huge successes is it has been incredibly educational. Even to people who might not share the politics of a lot of the actual MMT developers, they still find like they learned something. And I think that's the best that you can hope for for people you disagree with politically is like, even if I don't agree with anything that you want to achieve, I'm still smarter for having listened to you speak. And I think a lot of people would probably concede that from MMT, even if they wouldn't want to follow the logic or follow the thinking all the way through. So I and, think that's one of the things, though, that becomes really important in this context, right? And it, I, I agree with almost everything that you said there, by the way, um, and would suggest 
only one minor wrinkle, right? So there are some types of unemployment that are um, caused by the monetary system, and there are some types of unemployment that are simply caused by frictions, right? So I choose not to work currently. Now, the reality is, is you could clarify me, classify me as not being in the labor force, but I am seeking employment in my chosen field, not necessarily what is available to me, right? And so that yeah. type of frictional unemployment I would describe differently than what you're describing as the monetary system of unemployment, which is I need to produce dollars in order to survive, therefore I need to seek a job. One of the things that I think has become painfully clear in the United States is that we have taken that system and increasingly turned it into exploitation, right? Which is you need to take on massive amounts of student debt that are non-dischargeable, therefore you need a job, right? You need healthcare that is largely available through the private sector system in terms of employment, therefore you need a job, right? That places the worker at an extraordinary disadvantage versus the capitalist business owner, right? And that extends all the way down the line. The larger the organization that you work for, the larger the organization you run, the more power you have in that relative system. And one of the things that I would suggest that you're advocating for, certainly as evidenced by your background, is let's try to balance this out a little bit. This this has swung so far that it is beginning to approach the parameters of serfdom. And yeah. I, I, I tend to share that view. I, I, I think that we have created an environment in which the corporate citizen is so powerful relative to the other citizens, ranging from the dynamics that we just discussed to the ability to access the legal system because of the costs of the legal system, et cetera, that we're almost in a point where the system is prepared to break. And I think that's what we tend to feel. That brings us to a period that you referenced earlier, which is the dynamics of the New Deal. And, and one of the things that I always encourage people to do, coming out of 2008, from the Reagan revolution and the deregulation period that that had into the interlude of the Obama administration, where we saw a period of re-regulation, one of the celebrated authors became Amity Schles, whose forgotten man became kind of the rallying cry for many libertarians or those who believe that government regulation had unintended consequences. The book, so I obviously read that book, found it quite interesting. Um, there's a second book that's come out in this cycle, and I think it actually kind of creates a bookend to that, which is Matt Stoller's Goliath, which highlights the dynamic of the incipient fascism or corporatism that was emerging coming out of the 1920s into the 1930s. We saw that take hold in places like Italy. The United States was very much at risk of that as well, and Matt's book is largely about that dynamic. Could, what's, could you talk about those two in terms of balancing those and how you would think about that? Yeah, and I think I'd start with with sort of one one larger reframing, not of your point, but just as nope. a way that often people think about unemployment, which is, you know, they often think of something like a job guarantee, which, again, could be described in some respect as normative or could almost be described as sort of this is the only way to achieve full employment in a system where, you know, the unemployment that we were describing earlier is a monetary phenomenon, putting aside the frictional for a second. Um, but a lot of people would describe that as a big state program, big government program. And at least in my view, I think of that much more about empowering individuals, often against the state as much as against corporations. So if you're a Marxist, you know, your starting story is that uh, uh, the private property owners have forced you into a condition of needing to be an employee and then you have to sell your labor power, right? But at the same time, the alternative is the state is deliberately keeping people unemployed in order to keep worker power down and worker wages down and everything else. And so the act of saying, I have a right to a job, 
maybe not exactly the job that I want, but I have a right to convert my labor power into money is as much of a sort of middle finger up at the state keeping you down as it is the employer who wants you to have no other options. And so when we think of legal rights, and this is sort of goes back to our very beginning conversation, to me, it's as much about empowering the individual against the vicissitudes of an oppressive state as it is anything else. And we know this when it comes to other legal rights. If we say I have a right to free speech or something like that, that might be a right that the state has to enforce. But it's often enforcing it against itself in defense of the individual, or at least it should be. And so when we think about unemployment, um, to, to start from the, in the New Deal context, I think it's important that it wasn't just government versus business. It was organized labor, often in opposition to both of them. And there was this sort of tripartite dynamic evolving and being worked out. And I think you're absolutely right that there was this sort of emerging threat of corporate fascism. And we see this also in the legal history, right? We see this in what they call the Lochner era, where the Supreme Court, mostly pro-business conservatives, were striking down over and over laws designed to bring in some public regulation of, of workplace arrangements and other kinds of arrangements. And eventually, FDR, you know, threatened to, to pack the court and things started to change. But um, the idea at that point that you had massive unemployment, right, and it, that, that the state was failing to address both Hoover and early FDR, um, that leaves a huge space for the fascist mentality that comes in and says, I'm the only one that will look after our people. And it's based on exclusionary logic. It's based on creating an other. It's based on leaving certain people out of that narrative. But it wasn't, you know, as I think a lot of historians have have pointed out, it wasn't the hyperinflation in Germany that led to the rise of Hitler. It was the austerity and, and the depression. And he explicitly campaigned on restoring Germany to full employment and to, to glory. And so in some respects, I think when you have these large macro crashes like you had in 1929 and like you had in 2008 there is this this drop in in living and in in the overall growth of the economy that people feel acutely they can't point to it they can't say oh the problem here is that mortgage lending has dropped or something but they feel the the entire world has dropped a few gears and the suffering hits them and until somebody comes up with a narrative for how that's going to end uh, politics gets more and more radicalized and I think what we saw in, in the 1920s and 30s was that the U.S. went one direction on that. Uh, a number of other countries went the other direction, and it took a world war to bring everyone on, on one side of that process, or at least, you know, with the communists. Half, maybe half of, of the world, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And But in 2008, we didn't see that. We didn't see a large renegotiation of the social contract. And as a result, we had this sort of extend and pretend limping along, just enough stimulus that it, you know, that to stop the bleeding getting worse, but not to actually heal the wound. And um, there was a point, I think, probably about 2015, where I started to think maybe I've maybe I've read this wrong, you know, where I, maybe I've read this whole thing wrong. Maybe we will just limp through this all and just live at a permanently lower phase. And then, and then the 2016 primaries happened, and Brexit happened, and oh no, there we are. That there's no. the there's the rupture, and I think what people are starting to realize now is that the the ideologies of that prior era are not enough to counter the fascist threat because the fascist threat right now is offering an actual answer to the the crash to the crisis moment. It's not a good answer, don't get me wrong, but it's it's offering something that everything is fine. Everything we'll just we'll just do what we did before. America is already great. 
right? Nothing will fundamentally change. This was Joe Biden's line. That that's not good enough. And that in the absence of something else, that negative space will be filled. And I think that's the big parallel we're seeing. The real thing that, that keeps me up at night that worries me is that we don't have that organized labor as a third limb there. We don't have the strength that we had in the 1920s and 30s to go up against those big companies or to go up against the state. And so even when you have public muscular action against those big companies, which I welcome, it's often tinged with the surveillance state. It's tinged with the imperialist state that says, yes, we'll give you public bank accounts in exchange for getting to monitor every transaction you ever do. Oh, yes, we'll give you public health care in exchange for all of your health data going into this pot that we're going to do analytics on. And that, to me, I think is the is the dimension that gets obscured if we only talk in terms of government versus business. The little guy is underneath both of them. Government and business can have a conversation in the penthouse suite with each other. Uh, it, it doesn't get the janitor in the room. And that, I think, is the is the critical lesson from the 20s and 30s that we should be taking back to today when we're thinking about how to approach things. So I, I completely agree. And I would actually suggest that that dynamic, right, there's the perception that labor is involved to the extent that we have unions. They are effectively creatures of the state, primarily public unions at this point, where there is no feedback mechanism. There is no alternative. They aren't actually playing any role other than looking out for their own interests, which is important. I don't want to underemphasize that, but there is a, a degree of um, exploitation that leaves the average individual certainly saying this is wrong, right? It is not right that a police officer is able to collect X pension, whatever, right? I'm frightened even there because we're beginning to see the rise of defund the police, right? They're really saying is take away even that aspect of labor, right? When you think about what happens next, right? I mean, real vision viewers are familiar with, uh, you know, the somewhat pop psychology dynamics of the fourth turning or the fracturing that is occurring in terms of this social contract. Is there a prescription that you can offer or that you see that helps us ameliorate these conditions? I mean, just very quickly, my biggest concern is, is that the Biden administration is not the radical progressive administration that everyone thinks it is. Instead, it is an attempt to gaze back with fondness on the Obama administration and say, well, wasn't that better than 2008? Right. And so let's try to go back to that. That does not work. Um, yeah. And I, I'm I'm worried, very, very worried that what we've actually done is created a false narrative around what the Biden administration is likely to do. But floor back to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think that if there's one overall sentiment that's coming out of the Biden administration, it's nostalgia. Uh, yeah. It's nostalgia for for Tip O'Neill as much as it is nostalgia for Obama. Um, and it's certainly not nostalgia for the militant politics of the 60s or the 30s, um, which would be, in my opinion, the two closest analogs to the decade that we're living through right now. Um, but when you think about, for example, um, uh, the police, what you were just mentioning, I mean, Biden is talking about expanding funding for the police. And the answer to the capital crisis is to give more money to the capital police. And I think 
one of the things we saw even during the Trump administration is that the AFL-CIO was sort of always on the fence of supporting Trump. There's a lot of workers who who feel more affiliated with him. And I think that's a trap for workers in general. But, you know, when you look at the way that the police respond to to the uh, the protests in Portland or something like that, you know, tear gassing people walking down the street, and then you look at the way they respond to white nationalists literally storming the Capitol and sort of opening the door and letting them in. Um, I think the, the, the question of where police fit in the labor movement is a really, you know, is a question that the labor movement itself is still grappling with today. You know, are, are, are police workers, are they just sort of, are they really more like the henchmen of the boss or the henchmen of the state? And when you look at, as I mentioned earlier, um, even when there's progressive legislation, there's almost always a deference to the the police and surveillance side of things. I mean, the, the number of, I think, ex-CIA operatives that ran as Democratic Party officials in the last four or five years is sort of astronomical relative to prior trends. And even when something like, we, maybe we can talk about the stablecoin um, regulation side of things, um, you know, people in the crypto world were, were attacking me for, for being sort of, you know, saying we should regulate banks like banks or shadow banks like banks. Um, but I'm actually a pretty big believer in financial privacy. You know, the anonymity of physical cash is, I think, an incredibly important part of economic freedom. Um, and if you look at even people like Brian Brooks at the OCC with his recent interpretation letter about saying that banks can use, you know, stablecoin and public blockchain infrastructure and things, there's an, a capitulation from the first page, you know, from the first paragraph to all the needs of FinCEN, to all the needs of law enforcement. Oh, well, of course, we need to be able to de-anonymize. Of course, we need to be able to do this. Even friends of mine that, that promote things like Fed accounts or public, you know, payment systems will often not want to fight on the civil liberties side of things. They will want to defer that and, and, and leave that out of things to focus on economic equity. And so, you know, not to sort of be too crude, but I think that that sort of four-dimensional political spectrum, when you sort of think about the authoritarian sort of, you know, libertarian side and then the left-right economically, that there's this space for articulating a politics that is both equitable um, and, uh, you know, civil libertarian, and there is not really a kind of big dynamic for that yet. And I would put, you know, a lot of people may not sort of follow that logic there, but I would put not only something like anonymous digital cash in that world, uh, but also a job guarantee. I think protecting an individual's right to never be put in a condition of unemployment is as much about protecting you against big authoritarian public policy as it is about corporations. And so when we think about going forward, I think, you know, and this is perhaps the closest I'll ever sound to an American nationalist or an American patriot as an Australian, uh, is to is to re-emphasize, you know, an economic bill of rights and and a civil libertarian bill of rights. Well, what that means in a world of data and of digital platforms, well, it means housing and healthcare and a job and an education, but it might also mean the privacy of your own medical data. It might also mean the ability to drive down a street without 26 cameras taking a photo of you or not having facial recognition attached to your Facebook, attached to your credit score. Um, and that kind of world where, you know, to go back to these principles of, well, isn't my money as good as yours? You know, if, if, if you do your job and you're not breaking the law and you're, you know, whatever, then you have a right not to, uh, not, not to have your entire life sort of surveilled and controlled by people. And I think that will probably be the big vector in the future, whether people come down on the side of more state surveillance or more corporate surveillance will be less important than whether you're interested in preserving individual freedoms against both. 
So one of the things that I would just emphasize, and we're, we're wrapping up on our time here, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on and I wanted to have this conversation is I wanted to introdu introduce an element of rationality to it. So the thing that is bothering me most is effectively people shouting at each other and no longer communicating, right? And when you talk about the emergence of that labor stool, right, or that third voice, the only way that we're going to accomplish that as individuals is, if, is by stopping the shouting about what we want and maybe reaching out to somebody else and saying, hey, what do you want, right? Can we reach agreement on elements of a platform or principles that we want to share as you know, citizens of the United States or citizens of Australia or citizens of the UK? And I, I would just, I, I have this series in part because I want people to start to think about that sort of stuff. How could you reach out to somebody who is potentially opposed as you can possibly imagine and say, not what are your grievances about the past? But what do you want going forward? Right. And so politics of victimization don't play into that. Right. I, you can't I can't change the past. I can't change how your ancestor was treated or anything else. But I can change how you get treated going forward. Right. If we reach agreement on the principles that we actually care about. I hope that we're able to start moving forward in that way. It sounds like you share that sentiment very much. I don't know that either of us has the right answer. But I do think that we're hoping that people will start to consider a fact-based analysis of what it means going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's actually a lot of consensus of average people when you actually look at the things that people want. It isn't crazy out there stuff. It's, I want to be able to provide for my family. I'd like not to get, you know, sick and then be unable to survive, you know, or I'd like to have enough security that I can go a week without, you know, have, have disposable income of a week in my life. I'd like to not feel like my landlord's going to kick me out of my house. You know, I think these are pretty bread and butter issues. And the real question we need to be grappling with, at least in my view, is why is it that things that have 70, 80% popularity amongst the average people are still not being effectively mobilized? I mean, you know, you don't have to be a market guy, but surely there should be a, a, a political opening to take advantage of that energy. And whether, you know, when pe some people saw Trump coming in, they said, look, if he offers some real red meat to his base, if he does the kind of $2,000 check politics for four years that he did in the last week, we, we'd never get him out of office and mm. he'd be the next Mussolini. And he didn't do that. And part of that is because the rest of the Republican Party wasn't willing to go there either. And it's crazy, at least to me, that they would leave that on the table, not because I want them to win, but because, you know, they're usually better at politics than that. But the same thing is true of the Democrats. You know, you're seeing Joe Biden right now not wanting to go with extremely popular options when they're, they're available to him. And that question of where where the opposition is there, I think, is is important because there is something stopping that from happening that, that, that otherwise would be an obviously politically popular solution. Um, and when it comes to history, I mean, I, I, look, I take your point that we need to be looking forward. I think the reality is, and I come from a country where we dispossessed, you know, people at a pretty mm -hmm. large scale, and we're still in the process of reconciliation and things like that as, as countries like South Africa are with apartheid. And I think the question of how to move forward requires an honest accounting of the past and of the uh, perpetuation of inequities from that past. You know, I forget who it was. Was it Vonnegut who said, you know, the, the past isn't even isn't over. It isn't even past. You know, yeah, we're still Faulkner, living. Yeah. Faulkner, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, we're living in that world and we're living in, in the repercussions of that world. And so when it comes to going forward, I think, you know, the, the real question is going to be, are we going to address how we got here? 
and what 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 the conditions that led up to here. And one of the things I've been doing with the Stable Act, you know, sort of banging my head against the wall, is to try to emphasize that there's a history to this. That these crypto people aren't the first people that have come up with shadow banking. They aren't that the, the, the stable coins aren't the first instrument that has tried to be a deposit without deposit regulation. And in fact, this is a pretty old tale. This is a pretty old story. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen exactly the same, but it rhymes. And I think that that memory of history is going to be really important to not make the same mistakes, whether that's the 30s or the 60s or anything else. So I, I agree with you, we should be looking forward, but I think there is a role for for not forgetting the lessons of history and also um, uh, equity having a historical justice component. Um, and, you know, the, the question of how to do that, I think, is an interesting one. And there are people who say, you know, a job guarantee, for example, was a key demand of not only the labor movement in the 30s and 40s, but the civil rights movement in the 60s. Martin Luther King's famous march was for jobs and freedom. Now, giving everybody a job isn't just a racial justice policy. It's a policy that helps everybody, in my opinion. But it's one that would go a long way towards the 40 acres and a mule reconstruction that we never really finished in the 1800s. So do we consider that you know, the politics of grievance, or do we consider that a universal policy that is going to redress historical inequities? Well, it may depend on your vantage point, the way I would say it is, it's universally popular. 60, 70% of people want this. Why the hell hasn't one political party decided to jump on it yet? And that that question is a much more practically useful one to me, at least. Uh, well, so, and this is, this is, of course, where the dynamics of conversation occur, right? Because my perspective is the, the inability of us to address those issues and the inability to come to a common consensus around are there issues that need to be redressed? How do we address them going forward in a way that encourages equity of opportunity, not necessarily equity of outcomes, right? I think that's an important uh, dynamic. When you start to think about it in that context, it becomes very, very hard for people to let go of the anger and the frustration around those issues because they have a very real and raw dynamic associated with it, right? They are angry and they are hurt. And we need to acknowledge that. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. I know that you wanted to really focus on the Stable Act and the dynamics of-, of No, uh, this has been fun. Yeah, it's stable been a pleasure. Points. I would encourage people to check out your podcast with um, Dimitri Gofinas. You did a brilliant, brilliant defense of the arguments around uh, stable coins there. It really, really impressed me. And I hope that you and I are able to stay in touch going forward. I really enjoyed this. I'd like to have you back at some point in the future again as we begin to get further into the discussion around what is our common narrative going forward. Yeah, Romance, thank you very much for having really me. really a pleasure. Yeah, it's a Thank pleasure. you so much. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.